Hi, welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home, the podcast dedicated to helping pet professionals manage their stress and find more joy. My guest today is Dr. Leslie Stewart. She's an associate professor at Idaho State University, and she specializes in animal-assisted interventions and counseling. Hi, Leslie. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me again, Colleen. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm really glad to have you here today, and we are going to be talking about vicarious trauma, and that does not sound like a fun topic, but I know that you can make any topic interesting and fun. (laughs) Well, I I will do my best. I'll do my best. It's one of the things that I'm really passionate about, and one of the things that as mental health professionals is a required part of our training, because it is so common, and it, it does have such a huge impact on a helping professional and a helping professional is any kind of helper. Mm -hmm. It does have such a big impact on our quality of life, both personally and professionally. And I know you and I had talked about before, we're not shying away from anything. And as is consistent with my approach, I don't want to do that either. I'm aware that, that we have quite a bit going on with suicidal behavior in veterinarians, especially and, and other animal care professionals. And as I read about it and look into it, I see a lot of links between vicarious trauma and maybe some of those struggles that our our veterinary professionals are dealing with. I hope I'm able to offer some help. I'm, I'm sure you will be. Let's start at the very beginning and explain what exactly vicarious trauma is. So when talking about things that can happen to helping professionals, so those of us who make a career out of promoting the health and well-being of others, we're at risk for sort of the two conceptualizations of things that can happen to us. One is professional burnout. And if unaddressed, professional burnout can lead to something called vicarious trauma. So professional burnout, I I know people have heard burnout before. It's the kind of thing you experience when you're emotionally and cognitively exhausted. And so you go home And you do all your regular self-care strategies. Maybe you take some time away. Maybe you plan something fun with friends or family. And you feel rested and refreshed until the minute you walk back into the door at work. And Mm -hmm. then it, it all comes back. And so it can lead to some feelings of inadequacy, like what I do is never enough. Overwhelming feelings and often some feelings of cynicism that we we don't have a safe space to talk about. But that's all really, really normal. And Professional burnout is something that all helping professionals will experience, likely multiple times during their career. It's completely normal, and I, I think should be something that we dedicate safe space to, to talking about and, and processing. Um, and so when this burnout goes unaddressed, oftentimes we enter territory of vicarious trauma, And you'll hear this called different things. I think the professional literature hasn't completely agreed on a consensus of a term, but you'll call, you'll hear this called compassion fatigue. You'll hear it called secondary post-traumatic stress disorder, and you'll hear it called vicarious trauma. And so to really understand what that means, you first have to understand what trauma means to a mental health professional. And so of course we have the DSM for our diagnosis, which specifies someone who's gone through a certain identifiable events. And while that certainly applies, we're learning more and more that's grossly incomplete, that trauma is less about the thing you experienced 
and more about how that thing interacts with your subjective ability to make meaning of the world or your sense of reality. Yes. So a trauma is, if you will, an injury to your sense of personal meaning making or your sense of reality. And so as someone who works with folks with symptoms of of trauma, that's where I spend a, a lot of my time is understanding where the injury to that lens is, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that, that injury to, to lens takes symptoms of, of burnout or, or crisis to something that's cumulative. It's something that impacts all areas of our world because it's injured the lens that we view ourselves through, that we view others through, and that we view the world through. I like that analogy of a lens. I haven't heard that before and that it does really filter how we're perceiving things that the reality isn't necessarily any different, but how we're seeing what's happening is different. Right, right. And it's not a matter of who's the most resilient or who is the most mentally strong. This happens to all of us. Mm -hmm. And much like you would understand symptoms of trauma and things associated with that, so difficulty with relationships possibly some maladaptive coping strategies, some of the physiological and cognitive damage that's done by sort of a chronic stress response, as well as issues in identity. So identity disruptions, relational um, disruptions, those things happen in folks presenting with trauma symptoms. Vicarious trauma is called just that because it comes from witnessing trauma or terrible things in others or the world around you. And it it turns out that you can put people in fancy smancy brain scanners for people who know how to do that. (laughs) And the brain responds exactly the same way to vicarious trauma as it does to primary trauma. So your brain can't tell the difference between it happening to you and it it happening around you. And so, you know, for example, in, in counseling, A lot of times we run into folks who the world around them has done an incredible amount of damage. And that changes our sense of the world, Mm -hmm. our sense of meaning. Like, how can other people do this? Yes. Others. Uh, What kind of world do we live in hearing these stories? And I I imagine that um, I know it's the same in lots of other helping professionals, uh, doctors, nurses, even um, attorneys, especially public defenders. Mm-hmm. Um, first responders being able to see just sort of what what the reality of what's happened to a lot of these folks that that we care for happen, and it, it does tend to cause a major disruption in our sense of reality and our sense of meaning of the world and our place in it. So, when we're talking about that, what does that mean for your average pet professional? So, when you're talking about like the witnessing of trauma. In, in many cases, they are dealing with the human who has had some emotional crisis or an animal has had an emotional crisis, but they didn't actually witness the event. That doesn't really matter, does it? No, the event itself doesn't matter at all. I think, um, I think sometimes our understanding of, of trauma is a little bit behind in, in that, that sense. We're still focused on the event and mm-hmm. there's actually no valid measure of trauma severity. So you you can't rank it in order of severity. You can't rank a trauma response in terms of severity, but it's, 
it's not about the thing. It's about the injury to your lens, to your ability to make meaning of yourself, others, and the world around us. So when thinking of things that veterinarians might encounter, I'm going to stretch here since I'm not a veterinarian, but I would imagine that veterinarians run into a whole lot of very uncaring owners or owners who treat their pets badly or who put an animal down instead of getting it medical care that could solve the problem. Probably folks who don't appreciate them or their work have unreasonable demands on their availability or ability to work miracles. Yes. Um, all of these things accumulate into to what can result in a big injury. That person's lens, how they view other people, how they view their work, how they view their own worth. And so it's it's sort of those symptoms of burnout with the cynicism and not being able to um, come back rested and refreshed. It's that, but it expands beyond just the work setting into the person's entire lens. So yes. it affects all areas of their lives. And it's when folks are experiencing these symptoms, which many of us aren't taught. Many of us aren't taught right. that even exists, much less what to do about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we experience those risks, we're at the same risk for some of the symptoms of a trauma response, which is maladaptive coping, isolation and unhealthy relationships, as well as um, suicidal behavior and self-injury. Yeah. So much self-criticism for it. Um, that whole idea of like, why am I struggling or why am I not enough or why can't I stop feeling overwhelmed or burdened by things? Yeah, sure. I went and, to school 15 years for this. Why can't I do anything about it? Yeah. yeah. Why does no one understand or appreciate what I do? It's, it's really interesting how commonly those themes come up in my conversations with, with pet pros because it isn't something people are taught. And so it becomes the isolate, isolating experience, the I'm alone with this and maybe I shouldn't acknowledge it because uh, clearly something's wrong with me that, that I am having this problem. And I think further to that, that sense of isolation that often accompanies this is what do healthy and happy people do when they're having a hard time? They reach out to their friends and family, mm -hmm. they reach out to their positive social support. And so I know if I have a, um, if I go chat with my family after a particularly tough day as a mental health professional, and I come home and say, I had a rough day at work, that means something completely different mm -hmm. than maybe someone who works in, in a different setting. Right. Um, and there's a lack of like, why aren't you bouncing back? Like, yeah, you had a, a tough day at work. Why does that mean you can't uh, participate right now? Why does that, why are you still upset about this? Why can't you let it go? Why can't you leave it there? And so there's that further sense of isolation for folks working outside of these fields that really don't understand. That is a big challenge. It's, it's a big challenge on both sides. It's a big challenge that the people outside the field don't really understand, but also that if your only friends that you hang out with are inside the field, that there's also no escape. Right. And that you're sort of like always in it, in the soup of all of this. Right, um, escape shop talk. Yeah, really tricky. So when, well, just as a quick recap, can you just share some of the signs that we should be looking for in ourselves and others of, of what might be a way of knowing that either we or someone else is, is starting to feel the effects of vicarious trauma? 
So a, a lot of symptoms of a trauma that, that you would see in, in primary trauma, so someone who's experienced a traumatic event. So what we see is that our normal coping, what usually works for us when we're, when we're stressed, when we're tired, when we're feeling not, not ourselves, those things are the first thing that we go to and they don't work. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden they don't work. And then you're left feeling like you have nothing and it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. All my strategies aren't working. Yeah, I took a great weekend, took a trip with my family, and it, I'm still feeling this way. It, it didn't work. You might also notice that it's bleeding into your relationships with others. Um, and this is uh, one of the hallmarks of trauma is relationship destruction and, and isolation, that you're irritable with other folks. You feel cynical towards folks. You have less patience and you're less interested in other people and interacting with other people. And one of the things we know about how humans respond to crisis and trauma is that we become a little bit more Mm self-focused. And that works very well if we're actually dealing with an immediate crisis because we have to get ourselves out. But this sort of self-preoccupation that's not normally associated with that person's personality really bleeds through. So you'll see those emotional symptoms of of irritability, relational disturbances, uh, not really being able to connect fully with other people in in the way that we have before, and that sense of isolation because of it. You'll also start to see some physical and cognitive symptoms uh, sometimes. Uh, Sometimes these even show up first. Mm -hmm. So performance failures. And what I mean by that is stuff you know how to do. Yeah. All of a sudden, you, you keep making these mistakes and they look like careless, I didn't pay enough attention kind of mistakes, but they're not. And they happen over and over again. So one of my cues to myself that I'm creeping up on those kinds of experiences is when I start to double book myself. Mm. <laughs> and it, yeah, anyone can do that every once in a while. But when I'm having a week where like three, four times I've double booked myself, it's like, Ooh, okay. It's time to start yeah. prevention. So Things like that, missing symptoms that I would not normally miss or not being able to respond in the moment the way I I normally am am able to. And I'll become more rigid. So more black and white thinking. Yeah. It's either this or it's that. You're either with me or you're against me. And that cognitive rigidity that, that goes with that, which interferes with our ability to creatively problem solve, which is something that all helping professionals have in common is we all are creative problem solvers. Mm-hmm. So big impairments there. And then physically, uh, we start to see some things that are associated with high amygdala activity, meaning the part of the brain that kicks in when we actually run into a bear. So I live out here in Idaho. It's it's a thing that could happen to me at some point. <laughs> I on my hike. Um, so amygdala activity would definitely kick in there and it would be perfectly appropriate and super adaptive. It would prepare my body to fight the bear, to flee or to freeze and hide. Mm-hmm. And so at that moment, my body takes all the resources that it has in what's considered like a non-essential system. So for example, my digestion, mm-hmm. my immune response, and that's just a, a couple. And it redirects the energy even blood flow and glucose, it just, it shuts that system down so that it can flood me with adrenaline. It can spike my inflammation so that I have big, strong muscles to, to run or to flee. And that's all fine and fine and good. 
if it is the type of threat that's over in a few minutes like that. Right. So either way, if I run into a bear, my next, um, my next hike, probably this weekend, my body will prepare me. I'll either run away, I'll hide, or in some strange universe, I could fight it off. Um, or <laughs> I'm done for. Mm -hmm. Either way, the response is over in just a few minutes. Right. What happens with chronic stress, burnout, and vicarious trauma is there's no cue to the body that that threat is over. Right. Because psychosocial threats don't have a very clear beginning and end. It's not like I see the bear and it's coming towards me versus the bear is leaving. They're sort of always present and our, our body doesn't know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. So it keeps us in this constant state of like low level preparedness for that which means we can have symptoms associated with our body allocating resources away from what we do need when we're not running or fleeing or fighting. Right. And then you get into those rumination patterns where your brain is thinking, oh, I should have said something differently. I should have done something differently. And your body is responding as if you were still in that situation. Yeah. Funny thing, the brain can't distinguish between a real physical immediate threat like the bear a psychosocial threat. So embarrassment is one that most of us um, share as a psychosocial threat. Mm -hmm. Lots of resources. Um, so losing a job and a threatening memory. It can't tell the difference between an actual bear and a memory of being embarrassed or a memory yeah. of failure or shame. It responds to the same way. So yes, those rumination patterns do keep us there. You'll notice that you're more allergic to things than you normally are. You'll notice that skin and hair, you're seeing trouble with, with those kinds of things because blood flow is taken away from some of those capillaries and rooted more towards the big muscles, the large muscle groups that we need. Digestive issues start to happen. Sleep disturbances. So a, a lot of, of those kinds of things that I think we often look at as, okay, this is a, a medical issue and, and it is. Mm -hmm. um, but when those kinds of issues start adding up, it's time to start looking at, okay, am I in fight or flight mode, a low level fight or flight mode just all the time? Yeah. Yeah. I do think most people would separate that in their heads as something unrelated. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being treated for my skin issue and I'm being treated oh, sure. for my digestive issues and I'm yeah. trying to use a better scheduler because I keep double booking myself and not see right. all of the ties between them. Right. We're not seeing the forest for the trees. Right. Those kinds, because oftentimes this isn't taught in our training programs. Fortunately, in professional counseling, it's now required. But I think we're a unique profession in, in that in a lot of ways. Most people have never even heard that this exists. Right. And that is something that came up for me. I did a program at the University of Georgia at their Shelter Medicine Symposium. And uh, one of the students came up to me after and he said, this was really helpful to me because everybody keeps telling us, we're going to get compassion fatigue, but nobody tells us what to do. <laughs> and, and so they'll tell you what to do and then they won't tell you how to, how to work on it. Like, yeah. So, kind of lost. so let's, let's, let's go there a little bit here. Cause now we've scared everybody and said, basically I'm everything novel. that's going on in your brain and body is because your life is hard and your job is, is stressful. Uh, so what, what should we do? How should we, um, once we recognize that, we are in this state or headed toward this state. What next? I think the first thing is creating a sense of meaning around this, creating a sense of reality about this. This is normal. There's nothing wrong with someone who's experiencing this. 
um, and all helping professionals will encounter this at some point. And what it is, is a sign of a normal brain responding to a high pressure, sort of overwhelming environments, completely normal. And so I, I really hope that we start approaching this with the idea that it is normal. And when it happens, what are we going to do? This is where it gets a little bit complicated. There's no recipe or one size fits all. So I'm, I'm sorry about that. But I think one of the first things is recognizing it. So what do we do when we recognize it? Well, when we are self-preoccupied, we're not able to see the big picture and we're not able to self-assess accurately. Mm-hmm likely we're not going to see it until it it starts creating what we call impairment. So professional impairment in our field is when an emotional disruption or stressors compromises a person's work functioning and ability to provide client care. So we don't have the ability to be mentally present and we start losing our ability to have emotional or interpersonal stability. So um, our emotional stability is not what it was. Our interpersonal stability is not what it was. We become a bit unpredictable and we become a bit impaired in our normal ability to perceive and express empathy. Again, because of that self-focus. Right. There's some real obvious signs. So substance abuse or chemical dependency is, is one sign that that's probably going on. So if you're finding that you're turning to those methods to help calm or escape, Um, Mm -hmm. more often than what would be considered healthy use. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a big concern. Mental health concerns. So some folks call this mental illness. Again, I'm a professional counselor, so we don't necessarily view mental health symptoms as an illness. Are you meeting criteria for depression, for anxiety, for anything else? Or if you carry a diagnosis that's normally well-managed, is it getting worse all of a sudden? And then looking at physical illness. So have we become impaired physically all sort of rapidly and without a whole lot of explanation? So those are some big signs. That those are definitely big signs. Right, right. And if you're experiencing that, um, I think it's, it's really important to hit the pause button and attend to that. I mean, uh, aside from that, there's, there's other little things that will come up. And self-assessment is crucial. It's required in my profession. But nobody tells you how to do that. And it makes it a little bit difficult because you will literally be the last person to see it. How is it done in your profession? Like what is the self-assessment and is there a way we could tweak that for pet professionals so that they could use it as a tool before they're completely down the road, but, but as a hello warning sign. We have, um, we have a couple of paper pencil tools that, that are helpful. Um, I think those are still in development because even in our field, it's relatively new that we're giving this so much attention. Mm -hmm. So there are some self-assessment instruments that folks can use, and I'll be happy to provide you with the the names and citations for for that. Uh, That would be great. I've used the, um, I think it's called the Professional Quality of Life Yep, that's one of them. It measures symptoms of burnout and vicarious trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's exactly one of the the first ones that I would recommend. Okay, Um, I'll share that. Is just called self-care assessment. Okay. Um, self-care assessment. And it's, um, I, I'm going to butcher this person's name because it, it looks like they're from um, a country that their language is not the language I speak, but Zach Vietney and Perlman. Okay. So I'll, I'll send you that. And then we have a, a less formal one that we often use here called a wellness wheel. 
Um, and essentially, it's it's a wheel divided into several different parts that represent different aspects of wellness. Mm-hmm. And you carefully go through each aspect and see where you're doing well and where you need some work. Yes. Um, and so I'd be happy to send you that. That'd be great. So those are, are some um, some things you can do on your own, some sort of paper pencil. But I think in, in our field, we stay in regular peer consultation because it is my peers that'll see it before I do. It's those around me that'll see it. And so creating a relationship with several other trusted peers where we know each other well enough to notice if something's off mm-hmm. and we trust each other enough to be able to bring that up. And, and to notice it. And so I think peer consultation groups and peer supervision is your strongest defense against missing some of these. We're going to actually have an episode on consultation with Dr. Allison Leslie. Is that correct? Oh, From University I'm, of Dem- Denver? I, I'm not sure. But well, I am sorry to say if I've just messed up her name, but <laughs> trust me, in an upcoming episode, somebody qualified to talk about this is going to be talking about consultation and the value of it. Yeah. Um, but that's that's really important. And even if it's not a formalized thing, um, to make sure you're connecting and that you have a group of other professionals, first of all, to help combat that sense of isolation that nobody gets mm-hmm. in. Um, and that's kind of the magic of the Unleashed Resilience community is that yeah. we're working on it on a lower level. We're not doing the, the mental health work, um, but we're doing the support and engagement and creating connections a little bit of what you were saying about normalizing the experience and saying, oh, yes, this is part of it. And here are strategies for helping you through these uh, moments and these hurdles. I think just hearing from someone else, oh, I've been there too, is so helpful to people when they're struggling. Right. Right. I, I would agree with that. It's, it's hugely powerful. And then once you've identified that you're experiencing symptoms of vicarious trauma, you know, what, what do we do about that? Mm-hmm. And everyone's different. The way that vicarious trauma has impacted your lens is different from individual to individual. So we don't have a recipe. There, there have been 10 helpful activities that have been identified in our professional literature that, that we can talk about. But the first two things that I think are the most important things you're probably not going to want to hear. <laughs> the most important way to respond once we're aware that we're experiencing vicarious trauma or um, advanced professional burnout is that we need to hit the pause button on our practice. Mm. We need to stop seeing clients um, because our ability to provide quality care is impaired uh, because we are the best instrument that we have. Yeah. And so we, that is a difficult piece. Yeah. And we need to recognize times of personal crisis for us. Even if we think, Oh, I can just power through the workday. Let's say, um, You've just had a, um, a significant death in your family. You need to take the day off. Mm-hmm. You need to not come in when you have the potential to be impaired. Um, and again, recognizing it's not as a punitive thing, but recognizing it as, well, this is the way brains work. Mm-hmm. They're impaired. And if I want my clients to get the best care possible, then they need to see my colleague this week. Yeah. And next time my colleague has a crisis, I'll... Yeah, I'll, I'll pick up. But that's when we talk about quality of care and honestly putting the client's needs first, that's what it is. And so that's a way to be the ultimate in a caring professional is to understand when our primary intervention, which is us, is injured. And I think also we need to work towards building a community to where that is normal 
and supported and even encouraged. Mm-hmm. So the handling the logistics of that is difficult. Very. What does it look like if I need to take a, a week off? So again, creating this, this professional environment where this is thought about in ahead of time mm-hmm. and having a burnout plan in place. So sort of a professional safety plan, if, if you will, or it happens can, can be really helpful. The second thing that is, is really important to do is to seek out a trauma-informed mental health professional. So make sure they have experience and knowledge in trauma and trauma-related work uh, because it is nuanced work. So um, is that as easy as Googling? How does one find a trauma-informed mental health professional? That, that would, that's a great question because there's, there's lots of people who claim to be trauma-informed that maybe um, don't understand all that that entails. Right. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you are looking for folks who use correct terminology, trauma-informed approaches. You're looking for folks who practice from a bottoms-up rather than top-down approach. And that has to do with brain structures. So current approaches to to mental health work and trauma address brainstem symptoms first. So the fight or flight first. Right. Because when we're in that state, we can't access that prefrontal part for decision making, Mm -hmm. for judgment, for inhibition. And that's also the part of the brain that we need to reconstruct reality and meaning. So if we go straight for the top down, um, which some older approaches still still utilize, it's just not effective. Right. And it, it can be sort of invalidating and, and re-traumatizing. So you're looking for someone who is able to articulate a bottoms-up approach, even if they're, um, that's not the way they, they term it. And then folks with additional credentials. So trauma-informed cognitive behavioral therapy is a model that folks need additional training, and it's a great model. So that that's a certification to look at. EMDR is another certification to look at. And EMDR is a lovely thing. So it either works for you or it doesn't. But for those it works for, it's pretty, the closest thing I've ever seen is a professional to magic. Mm -hmm. That's Um, what I've heard. I haven't seen it done, but I have heard that. It's pretty amazing. And it can be done. You can start to have symptom relief, not full symptom relief and, and, you know, of course, restructuring that sense of, of meaning, that, that lens. But you can start to experience some pretty significant relief in just a few sessions. So that can be used on its own or in conjunction with traditional talk therapy. So that and then somatic experiencing is, is another additional training model that, that folks can get training in that really honors that, that bottoms-up approach. Yes. So those are some things I would be looking for and I'm glad to to work with you a little bit more behind the scenes to create maybe a um, a sheet, okay, um, that folks could could use to how to identify the right mental health provider. That'd be great for for my needs. We're only two through your list of ten strategies. Mental health is not a strategy. Yeah, mental seeing a mental health provider is straight up just a recommendation for <laughs> it's it's best practices. Yes when you find that you have an injury is to find the appropriate professional to help you heal the injury. So the, the helpful wellness activities, and again, I can send you this in, in sheet form. The number one strategy is discussing cases with colleagues. Awesome. So that peer consultation, that peer support, that normalizing 
having someone external to you be able to understand what your normal is mm-hmm. and recognize changes in it. We also know that in terms of dealing with the human stress response, just in general, that positive social support is one of the top resilience strategies. Right. So that, that fits in nicely with that. The, the second one is one that you and I just engaged in not too long ago, but attending workshops or other professional development activities. Mm-hmm. So similarly, learning new things, engaging with other professionals with different points of view can help us feel refreshed. And I, I often tell my students, you know, when you become a mental health professional, self-care isn't about bubble baths anymore. It's about finding something that helps you remember why you love this work, mm-hmm. that refreshes you in that way. Yes. And so, so those kinds of experiences can, can really help with that. Number three comes with a caveat. Uh, number three is spending time with family and friends. So these are our non-peers, friends. And the caveat to that is they need to be healthy. So it's not the right time to, to walk into maybe a, um, a, a strained family relationship and spend lots of time right. in that context, but with healthy family and friends. The fourth is recreation and leisure. Again, that's that comes with some logistical considerations and it's one nobody wants to hear is, yeah, you do need time like actually away, like for real away, not just I took the afternoon off from your work to get you in touch with who you are. Things that remind you of your, your own passion and get you in touch with the real you. Yeah. Whatever you define that as. So for me, it's spending a lot of time in remote wilderness areas. Thank goodness I have access to a lot of those. <laughs> um, but I get to remember that I'm an animal lover. And I get to watch wildlife without having to do anything. When you go backpacking, there's always things that go wrong. And so I'm a really good creative problem solver. And I'm an adventurer. And those kinds of things, those things that make me me. So finding leisure activities that allow you to get in touch with the parts of you that you like best and that serve you well. So some of these others are a bit redundant. So talking with colleagues between sessions. So some debriefing, uh, not just once a week or once a month, but in between sessions, just Mm -hmm. checking in. uh, How's your day? Is there anything you need to unload? And um, socializing and exercising come in. So again, that, that positive social support is so crucial. And it's often the last thing we want to do It is when we're experiencing those symptoms because it breeds isolation and isolation is both a symptom and an exacerbator Mm -hmm. of, of what's going on. So we need to socialize. We really do. Even when we don't feel like it, physical exercise is really important. Again, nobody wants to hear that. And this doesn't mean that you have to train to run a marathon. That doesn't mean that you need to be become like a a bodybuilder or um, someone who is super fit. None of that. We're talking about something cardiovascular on a regular basis. So at least three times a week that gets your heart rate up pretty high and then lets it come down again. That's it. For me, it could be running up the stairs. So it's not about running three miles every morning, although that if, if that's the works for you, that's awesome. But it's building in time where we elevate our heart rate and then let it fall back down. And in that way, we sort of speak that language of the threat that our bodies mm-hmm. for. Oop, my heart rate went up and it came back down. So helping remind our body 
throughout our week that we can come back down and it engages some some pretty important parts of of the brain the hypothalamus and hippocampus when we get the heart rate up and then down and those are related to helping regulate the amygdala so it's more than just fitting into your skinny jeans <laughs> and it's yeah. actually reminding me of dog training because with some very anxious dogs one of the very first things we want to do is start to tr- train them to be calm to, so that yeah. they can learn the experience. Like what does calm feel like? Mm-hmm. And this is exactly what you're saying is that our bodies when we're under chronic stress are sort of at that whole vibrating level of their stuff and the yeah. running up the stairs and then teaching your body, ah, this, oh, yeah. this is what calm feels like. And now I can learn to keep coming back to okay. that. And, and you give, you do activate those two structures in your brain, the hypothalamus and the hippocampus which are involved in the calming cycle, the like after stress response, you activate those and you give those a chance to do their natural work. Mm-hmm. I had a student some years ago, part of learning to become a counselor is watching yourself on tape and it's awful. It's <laughs> awful. It's a, that's a trauma in and of itself. But every so often they have to be taped performing the, the counseling skills as part of like a, a midterm or a final. Um, and I had one student that in, in everyday classes um, performed beautifully, really knew his stuff and was able to, to do it quite well. But the minute we hit the record button on the camera, he fell apart, just couldn't do it, not even to the point to get a passing evaluation on, on the tape, uh, not even just sort of like, okay, it's, <laughs> it's not your best word, but okay, just couldn't. And so at the time, um, I was working on the ninth floor of a building and um, so I, I scheduled him at the end of the day and um, had him run, take the elevator down and then run up the stairs and immediately come around the hall and sit down. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only thing that worked. So it, it does help. And it's not about diet culture, fitness culture, or anything to do with your skinny jeans. It's about how do I engage those two parts of my brain that are mm-hmm. really crucial in um, the recovery cycle. Yeah. That makes total sense. That makes total sense. Well, I think this has been a really interesting conversation with a lot of really good tips. Have I have we missed any that you want to squeeze in? Since you said there was some redundancy toward the end, we'll put the whole thing in the show notes. But yeah, sure, yeah, and I can I can send you. I have slides galore on all of this, so <laughs> always welcome to limiting caseload. Is again, once we know that we're having experience mm-hmm. with this, once we do come back, making sure it's. It's not our, our full caseload. Again, I know yeah. logistics. Nobody wants to hear this. Right. It does. Nobody it's, wants to hear it, but it's at it's times tough. it's necessary. If, if we haven't intervened early enough in the cycle. Right. It's best practice. Yeah. Supervision, which I, I'm not sure if, if all fields, but peer supervision, which is where you invite a peer to look at your work or when you're learning a, a new specialty, getting, getting supervision. So again, giving folks with as much experience or more the opportunity to look at your work to help you evaluate. And then spiritual development is on there. And I think when, when I say spiritual development, a lot of people automatically go to religion. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not true. Religion is part of spirituality, but spirituality doesn't have to include religion. Right. Spirituality is sort of a higher purpose or a higher calling. Mm-hmm. So what does this mean in the grand scheme of things for you? And if religion is a way you make meaning of that, great. But it's certainly much bigger and broader than, than just that, but that getting in touch with who you are, 
reconstructing that sense of meaning. So why are you doing what you're doing? Like, what does this mean in the grand scheme of things? And carving out time to reflect on that. Um, I think that's a real key, the mm -hmm. carving out time to reflect. And so having some exploration is awesome. But if you don't take some time to process the thoughts about it, then you lose the value of the exploration. So I think it's reflection is an underrecognized tool. Right. And so the, the strategies that, that I just sort of shotgun blasted you were identified in 1995 and they are still considered the top wellness strategies, which that doesn't happen in, in yeah. literature where something that, um, is that, uh, that old is still considered sort of a gold standard. But um, so that particular uh, list of activities has, has stood the test of time and it does not replace mental health care. Right. So those are things that you can do in the meantime. But once, once you get to the point where your lens is, is really, really injured, involving an appropriately qualified mental health professional is so crucial and they can and will understand and they can and will help you reconstruct a new reality. You can never go back to the old one. This idea that I healed and I'm back to back to where I was, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not realistic or healthy. You'll never be the same. But you can construct a new set of meaning that accommodates the new reality and is adaptive and promotes high quality of life for you and your loved ones. Yeah. And that's very empowering. And <laughs> To, to have a new, a new framework to see how things have shaped up. Yeah, yeah. Most of my caseload consists of trauma. And so I have heard the worst of the worst of what we can do to each other. And it's all the time. And it's all around us. The prevalence rates for this is just astounding. And so even for myself, I had no idea the world was this brutal. I, I knew it. It was hard. Mm -hmm. Just the amount, the sheer prevalence and severity of how brutal other people can be in the world can be. It was an adjustment that I had to go through myself. And ultimately, I can't deny that it is. Yeah, that is a true thing. It is brutal out there and other people can and will hurt you. But I still want to be an active participant in it. So how do I build a sense of self that can support my choice to be an active participant in an inherently unsafe world? Yeah. And so, find joy and meaning yeah, with that. Yeah. I still like the world. Yeah. I still want to be out there. I still have, uh, I have tons of joy. I have tons of great relationships and, and great experiences. And it still accommodates the new reality, which... There's bad stuff out there too. Yes. Um, and, and each person needs to go through that process themselves because the way my lens was disrupted is not the same way that um, yours will be or, or other mental health professionals or animal care professionals. But that's where a mental health professional can really help. We're not abandoning the new things you've learned because some of them are adaptive. Mm -hmm. But we're creating a new reality that accommodates what you've learned and is still a place you want to live. Well, that is wonderful. This has been really a very helpful conversation about vicarious trauma and um, hopefully things that people can use to move forward through their day-to-day -day life. If people want to learn more about you and your work, how could they do that? 
Well, I'm really easy to find at Idaho State University in the uh, counseling department. So we have a, a lovely web page that I think I, I shared with you. I also designed and instruct a certificate curriculum in animal-assisted interventions and counseling. So it's introductory all the way up through advanced practice. And that's for counselors, of course. But we also accept other related professions, so other helping professions. So we've had some OTs, some speech-language pathologists, some social workers join us from, from time to time. We very rarely turn interested folks away. <laughs> I tell you like, okay, we are going to teach from the counseling ethics. So just as long as you know that. Yeah, that's that's some of my work there. And yeah, for, for those of you involved with, with pet partners, I do a lot of collaboration with pet partners, especially with the new animal assisted crisis response program that, that they rolled out. So I, I do some collaboration and consultation with that as well. But I always welcome folks to, to reach out and um, hopefully I can be a resource. And if my journey and learning about vicarious trauma and resilience can be of help to another professional, count me in as a resource. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to pay it forward in that way. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you. Are you a member of the circle of resilient and thriving pet professionals? I hope you are. It's our Facebook group where you can find support, encouragement, and connection. If you're not a member, come on over and join us. We're waiting for you. <laughs>